All right, I want to go back to Genesis, chapter 42. Last time I spoke, we left off here at the end of chapter 41. It's quite a story here about Joseph and about Ephraim. And as a bit of a review, God had narrowed it down out of the 12 sons, the 12, what would become the 12 tribes, to that of Joseph. He had decided to work through Joseph. And as we come down later on, we'll begin to see that he also changed the birth order in terms of God's purposes and plans, even with Manasseh and Ephraim. That Manasseh had been the literal firstborn of Joseph's sons, but God elevated Ephraim above Manasseh and made him the firstborn son, as it says in Jeremiah 31. So God is quite capable of doing things the way he wants them. He can sort things through, and once God says it, it's a done deal. It doesn't matter what may or may not have happened physically. God can shuffle the deck any way he wants to. And what he says goes. You might say, well, wait a minute. Manasseh was born first. He gets the double blessing. God says, no, I'm in charge here, and I say... Ephraim does. Double fruit. Like some of the Gentile kings used to say in the movies, so let it be written, so let it be done. So God saw that it was written that way, and he is doing it that way. Sometimes we need to be sure that we get in line with what God wants done. It reminded me as I was reading back through this again this morning <clears throat> that uh, God chooses whom he will to work with as he sees fit. There were those who disagreed when God chose Moses. And later on they rebelled against him. And they said, well, he's just a man like anybody else. Well, that's right, he was a man. And he was pretty much like anybody else for that matter. But God had his reasons for using that man. Down in chapter 42, verse 6, it says, Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold all the people of the land. Pharaoh had chosen Joseph, and God had chosen Joseph. Now, we've already gone through the story of the attitudes of the brothers, and even of Jacob, who finally said, you mean even... Your mother and I are going to bow down to you as well, not just your brothers. Jacob thought about it. He didn't let his vanity get torched clear out of shape on the job, on the deal, but the brothers did. They became very jealous. And as I reviewed that in my mind a little this morning, I got thinking about the church and how we all experienced over the years and worldwide the ordination jockeying, who would get to be a deacon and who would get to be an elder and all of this and about the vanities and the egos that went on and how people would get upset when somebody was ordained instead of them because they felt they ought to be. Lots of vanity, lots of ego, lots of things went on that were ungodly, unrighteous, incorrect, and simply ego, vanity, and self. Why would anyone who has 
the mind and spirit of God get upset when someone else is ordained other than them. It's just ego, just vanity. I am better than he. Anytime you have those feelings or had those feelings, that's what it was. I can remember as a student watching them ordain older students. And sometimes my ego and vanity would get in the way and I'd think, well, why not me? Of course, as a freshman, there were plenty of reasons why not me. <laughs> you know, or a sophomore or junior or whatever. But there, you know, there's that competition that can get there between students. Why did they let that guy go lead songs in church? Why not me? I was affected by it. I'll admit that. And so were some of you. But it was wrong. Shouldn't have been. But sometimes we get carried away with our own importance. And I, I think that there are two extremes. In some cases, we can't see God in our lives, which is a terrible thing. People can't see God truly working in their lives. They have difficulty understanding why God would be concerned with them and why would he call them and who are they anyway. And there's a certain humility that is involved there that is probably good, but there is also, with that attitude, a lack of recognition of God's great power and his choice and his desires and his purposes. There's a certain amount of disrespect to God when we disrespect ourselves. And it can create a false humility, which is what a lot of Protestants have and what a lot of people in the Church of God have. And I can understand why we question, why me? Because apart from our vanity and our ego, if we really look at ourselves honestly, we can understand that there could be a problem with God calling or using any one of us. Because really, we don't amount to much. So there's a true perspective there, and yet sometimes it can hurt our growth because we can fail to see God's purpose in our lives. And we certainly need to see that. Now, on the other extreme, and I, I, I guess I thought of this yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before, for some silly reason, a song came into my mind. I go to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. The old Protestant hymn. Where did that come from? Just kind of appeared in my head. And then I, it's how a song will go, and then you can't get it out of your head. So some of those lines kept going a little bit through my head, and uh, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Now there's the height of ego. I have such a special relationship with God that there's nobody that shared anything with him that I have. 
Now, in one sense, that's true, because as human beings, we're all unique. We're all different. And the particular relationship we have with God is the only relationship like that on earth, good or bad. But I don't think that was what was in mind when this person was out on a marijuana trip or whatever and wrote that song. Nobody has ever experienced the joy that I have with God. So that person who wrote that put God or put themselves as the center of God's universe. Uh, it should be the other way around. God should be the center of our universe. And we have the other extreme of those who think that they're God's gift to any and everything. The most important, and I'm the one that ought to be this, or I ought to be that. Why didn't God use me? Where's the balance between I can't find God in my life or I'm the center of God's life? You know, thinking on that, when we pray, everything else should stop. Everything else should stop. When we address God, everything else should stop. I've seen people ask a blessing on the meal with the TV still on or the stereo. So you're trying to concentrate on giving God thanks, and yet you're hearing this music or hearing these people or somebody tells a joke on the TV, and it divides your attention. Well, when we address God, it should be undivided attention. Do we respect him enough? Maybe we just never thought of it. But do we respect him enough that we would shut down everything else while we pray? Or if it's your favorite program, let's say a quick prayer so we don't miss anything. He should be the center of our universe. When we have a prayer opening a service or closing it, there shouldn't be people looking around the room to see who's there or not there, or this is the time to get my clothes all adjusted uh, during the prayer. Well, what are you thinking about? Your clothes or God? Our undivided attention ought to be on God. Any prayer or formal ceremony before God should have undivided attention. He is the center of the universe. I always at weddings try to remember, I haven't always done it, but I try to remember to tell the people or the photographer himself if they hire one, no pictures during the ceremony. Now, here we are making a plea for God to formally bind two people together as husband and wife, and some comic out there has a camera going. Where is the respect and the reverence for Almighty God during a wedding ceremony, an ordination ceremony, a baptism? should never be pictures taken during that time. That is a time when we are formally making a petition before God. And it is not the time for anything other than that. I guess what it shows is that 
We're the center of our own world, and we want a picture of us being married, or we want a picture of me being ordained, or we want a picture of me sucking water up my nose, or whatever. It's always been the rule in the church, but if you don't remind people, and sometimes they get all snap-happy <laughs> during that time and can't contain themselves. Well, they, they just lost their perspective. They don't understand. We're talking to God here. We're not taking pictures of ourselves or making comments or whatever. <coughs> so let's be careful we don't get so caught up in ourselves and infringe on something that is of God. Where is the respect and the reverence for God? Sermon it over. Let's go back to the context here. <clears throat> but those are some thoughts that came into mind as I was reading through this. So the, the famine was sore in the land. God had, as we saw last time, manipulated things to get Joseph down there, to get him in charge after a prison sentence and all kinds of things he went through. But he didn't know what was going on, uh, and then God put him in charge of all Egypt. So chapter 42, when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you stand there looking at one another? Why don't you do something? Twelve or eleven sons, I guess, at that point. <clears throat> and instead of anybody doing anything, they're all standing around, I guess, expecting each other to do something. Uh, I had a rare occurrence yesterday. Usually when we have something that needs done, or quite frequently, not always, but frequently when something needs done, we talk about it and no one ever gets around to doing it. And yesterday there was something that needed to be done and two people acting totally independently did it. And it, it became redundant. Uh, we didn't need two batteries for that piece of machinery, but... Uh, that happened. That's not a criticism. It's just, uh, you know, two people saw something needed done and two people jumped on it. And it's totally independent of one another. In this case, you had 11 of them standing around thinking, well, something ought to be done. And nobody did anything. <laughs> so Jacob says, why are you standing around just expecting somebody else to do something? He said, behold, I have heard that there's corn in Egypt. Get you down there and buy for us from there that we may live and not die. We're starving to death here. Aren't you going to do something? I'm an old man. You young guys ought to be busy doing something. <clears throat> Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. Just ten, not eleven. We'll see why only ten. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest by chance mischief befall him. He had already lost Joseph, and he only had two sons by Rachel, was the woman that he truly loved. And one of them he thought was dead, and he certainly did not want to lose Benjamin, his last tie to Rachel, who had since died. The sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the famine is in the church, too. Not just the rest of the world, but Canaan. Uh, both it's beginning to be in America, and it is certainly in the church today. I'm going to come back for a moment here to uh, 
Amos chapter 4. Amos 4. We see two levels here of famine. God is talking to the church here at the end time, as well as our physical nation, of our physical nations of Israel. He says down in verse 4 of chapter 4, Come to Bethel and transgress, and Gilgal multiply transgression, and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. Uh, must have been at a time of third tithe year, but... It's a prophecy for the future, so it indicates that even now, in this end time, uh, the first, second, and third tithe procedures of the Old Testament are certainly still in effect. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this likes you, uh, or, O you children of Israel, says the eternal of God. He says, Obey me. Then he says, I've given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. So the church is that way today. Uh, people say, I'm not being fed, I'm not being given what I need, the understanding that's necessary to help me understand and to grow. <clears throat> so cleanness of teeth means you're not eating meat or anything that would get between your teeth and dirty up your teeth. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Eternal. Well, God says in the midst of what we see going on around us, that even yet people have not turned to God, even though we have a spiritual famine going on. And we now have people who cannot afford food even in the nations of Israel today, physical food. And it's going to get much, much, much worse over the next months and year or two or three or four. But is the nation turning to God, and is the church turning to God? No. Church is just going on like it always was, trying to recreate worldwide church of God, which God blew apart because he was so upset with the way it was. <clears throat> you have those who proclaim, so we're recreating worldwide. Big deal. That's what God spewed out of his mouth. That's not anywhere near good enough. We have to rise way above what we were in worldwide, all of us. We have to be far more dedicated to God, far closer to him in prayer, far closer to him in obedience than ever we were in worldwide church of God. It was a lukewarm, lackadaisical, ho-hum, take-it-for-granted attitude that he could not stand. He tells the church of Ephesus to get their first love back. I think there is a lesson there for all of us. When we first came in 40 years ago, 30, 40, 50, whenever, we were excited. We were thumbing through, trying to find truth, trying to understand God's ways. And we had that first excitement and love. And later on, it became a little ho-hum, and we quit digging in there. Now, when we see things fall apart, what does that mean? It means you better dig up some more treasure. What you had was not enough. 
They didn't see you through. The people have gone on ho-hum, let's just recreate worldwide like it always was and send out booklets and pamphlets and everything's okay. No, it's not. Now, we're onto some things now that we ought to be really searching to prove true. Really searching to prove true. Not to prove false, not to be negative, but to prove whether they be so or not. We should walk down the street and be able to hear Bible pages turning. As people search <clears throat> to find out what God wants and what he's doing. You shouldn't leave it all up to me, Gordon or Nelson, to turn all this up for you. You should be digging it out, finding out, is this so or is it not so? Where are the scriptures that corroborate? We have famine just as much as Joseph, Jacob, and his, the brothers had. Famine of the word. <coughs> if you haven't returned to me, I've withheld the rain from you when there are yet three months to the harvest. Bad time not to have rain. Plants need to grow and produce ears. And I caused it to rain on one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered to one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Those churches, people left one, went to another, left that one, went to another, trying to find rain. And they came smaller. And God says, yet have you not returned to me, says the Eternal. I've smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Eternal. <coughs> God says, I keep doing this. I make things worse. Church gets more and more scattered. Things fall apart more. Can't get any work done and no results from what you do. Yet you haven't returned to me. Verse 10, I've sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with a sword. A lot of young people left the church and have taken away your horses. You don't go as fast on foot as you do on horses. I've made the stink of your camps to come up to your nostrils. The stench of decaying churches. Spiritually dead. And we're about to see the stink of physically dead coming up in the nations of Israel. Neither Israel nor the church have returned to God. <clears throat> I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have you not returned to me. What is it going to take for the churches, the people, to really wake up? and to be renewed and seek God with zeal. We just go on like nothing happened. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I've done this, I've done that, you wouldn't return to me. Now we're going to look eyeball to eyeball. You better get ready. 
Now let's see that that was partial. Two or three cities or churches went together to try to find food, spiritual food. We changed organizations several times, some of us. <clears throat> Chapter 8, verse 10, I will turn your feasts in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it as the morning of an only sun, and the end thereof is a bitter day. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Eternal. Hard to find true words of God in the church today. They shall wander from sea to sea, coast to coast, from the north to the east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the eternal and shall not find it. <clears throat> and that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst. So it's just gotten worse and worse. And yet, we have not returned to God. Not the way he wants to be turned to with our whole hearts. So, with that background, <clears throat> we can understand that Genesis 42 and this whole story back here is prophecy. It's things that God caused these people to go through on a physical level that were written down. Why? For them? What good did it do them? It was written down for those of us upon whom the ends of the world have come. There are lessons here for us to learn. That's why I'm tying Amos in with this. Because we are going through, spiritually right now, what these people went through and what our people around us, the nation around us, are about to go through on a physical level. You might think about it Monday, start getting hungry or thirsty. How long could you go without food and water? How long can you go without eating and drinking? Not very long. The old body begins to cry out. And realize, a very shortly, in the United States of America, people will have nothing to eat. Fully one-third of our people are going to die of famine and pestilence. One out of three walking around, starve to death, die as a disease that comes on as a result of starvation. That's a terrible way to die. But that's where Jacob was. Are we going to stand here and starve? slapped to death? Are you boys going to do something about it? <clears throat> so they went. Verse 6, And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold all the people of the land. God had manipulated things to get this brother to be in this position. The other brothers had gotten jealous, but there's no room for that. Didn't that jealousy come back on their own heads? Didn't they get in trouble with their father? And aren't they going to see more trouble here shortly? It's just not the way to be. <clears throat> We're to be humble. 
We're to esteem others better than ourselves. So there is no room for jealousy when someone else is promoted, and maybe we're not. Maybe instead of being jealous and egocentric and vain and proving we are not qualified by our attitude, maybe we should be thankful that someone else has been growing and changing and overcome and that they have been promoted as a result. Now, that's the way it should have been in worldwide, but wasn't. Does that give us an inkling, then, of what I was trying to say, that we have to do things far better than we did there? What if I were to call somebody up here today to ordain them as a deacon or an elder? Have we grown to the point that we would say, I'm sure glad that person grew, and not even feel a twinge of jealousy over it. Now, maybe we've seen enough abuses at this point. We wouldn't want to be ordained anyway. But that's a different problem. It tells us in the Bible to be slow to ordain. Slow to ordain. And yet I've seen guys that just ordain anybody who stands still. I mean, literally, there were a few like that in the ministry. They'd hardly even know you, hardly know anything about you. And you look pretty good. Let's slap hands on you. Wrong way to go about it. Totally wrong. A lot of mistakes were made that way. Or because they played golf pretty well and could pay your way in. You know, there, there are a lot of wrongs. There were a lot of wrongs. Let's do better. Let's overcome. Let's change. Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Remember that dream back there about my, the sheaves of corn that came and bowed down? And his brothers took exception to? <clears throat> it's going to happen again. Have you read Isaiah back here? I know you have. Let's go back here for a moment to Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the last days, right at the end of times, this age and this culture, that the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. So God's going to establish his house in the mountains. It may mean governments in terms of churches. It may also mean literally on a mountain in terms of a physical temple. God's house, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. They'll all look to it for something. That is, those who are converted, ultimately in the millennium, God's house, his temple is going to come down, and all nations at that time, all peoples will flow to it or have no rain, as in Egypt in Zechariah 14. And many people shall go and say, Come you, and let us go up to the mountain of the eternal, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. They'll beat their uh, plowshares into pruning hooks and so on. That isn't the one I wanted. I wanted chapter 4. This, this applies, but 4 is where I was headed. Uh, verse 3, It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, he that remains in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Now, I'm still ahead of myself. Uh, verse 1 is what I really wanted. 
In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So God is going to cause all seven churches to take hold of one man. Now, all of these men who think they are the leading evangelist or the leading apostle or the only apostle or the this or the that, is there going to be some jealousy? Is there going to be some resentment? How much has the church grown? Now, let's take away all the political lines. Let's take away all the names and monikers we might have on our organizations and groups. But have the people of God, the ecclesia, or ecclesia, depending on how you pronounce your Greek, Greek, the called out ones. How many of those people have grown to the point that they would be willing to go to someone God might choose and be taught? How much vanity, how much ego is left so that they might even recognize. But they are so full of themselves that they will not listen. God makes it very clear that candlesticks represent churches. End of Revelation 1, just as he starts to address the seven churches of the end time, because Revelation is an end time book, and all seven churches do exist Matilda, at the end. Not just knows the tale through history. And to absolutely prove that point, go to Zechariah 4 and see that the two olive trees, the two olive branches, Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses of Revelation 11, feed all seven of the candlesticks. The golden oil pours out of them to the seven churches, the seven candlesticks of Revelation 11. So, God is going to cause all who hear the truth to come to those two, and only those two. That's it. That's the only place he is going to be speaking. That's the only place that the true words of God, as he wants them said, will be preached. They're the only two he will be working through. They give the golden oil to all seven. That eliminates the rest. So wherever that comes to be. We all need to check our church names and our titles at the door and come in and listen. I remember a story that Charles Dorothy told us in Spanish club one time in college about this guitar player, Spanish guitar. I can't quite recall his name right at the moment. Uh, it almost came to me and it went again doesn't matter. But the upshot of it was that when this man played, all the other guitar players in the room set their guitars against the wall and listened. 
God is going to narrow it down where he has a place where he is working and he will not be working anywhere else. And if you want to hear the words of God, that's where you had better be. Now, he had chosen Joseph out of the twelve brothers. They were all boys. They were all men. They all had two arms, two legs, a brain, and other parts. They were alike. But God decided he would use Joseph. Had the others been mature and understanding, they wouldn't have gotten in the attitude they let themselves get in. And if we were spiritually mature and understanding, we would not let ourselves go there either. But we already know from the Scriptures that when God chooses those men and begins working through them to do the end-time work, 90% of the church will find reasons to reject. 90% of the church will reject it. When it becomes obvious, when they are on the scene in such a way that it is recognizable. I don't mean obscure. I don't mean something that hasn't happened. I mean when it happens. When everyone sees and can examine what is occurring. With miracles from Almighty God involved, 90% of the church will find a reason to turn away and reject. That is absolutely scary. What about you and me? Have we learned enough and become mature enough and read our Bibles enough so that when we see certain things start happening, we'll say, I read that in Isaiah. I read that in Genesis. I read that in Zechariah. I read that in Revelation. I read that in Matthew. <clears throat> I can go find it. My memory may be gone, but I can find it. Have we studied it out and proved it? Do we learn anything from history? We came into the church of God, and we read Why Were You Born, and all about water baptism, and the U.S. and B.C. and prophecy, and on and on and on. And then the minute somebody stands up and says, Well, folks, we need to go back to Sunday. Amen, brother. What had we proved? Nothing. Nothing. Hadn't dug it out of God's Word and did not have conviction. Oh, that's what Herbert said. No, it wasn't like that, was it? That's not what God's only living apostle, the only one since John and James and Peter said. That isn't what Herbert W. Armstrong, God's apostle, said. He looked way too much to a man and not nearly enough to God's Word. Now, God did choose that man. I don't mean to be putting him down. God did choose that man to start the former temple of the end time. 
He was truly a minister of God, a servant of God. And he did give us the basic truths. But so many who came in did not really prove them. They agreed. They thought that sounds good. That makes sense. But they were not convicted of the Sabbath. They weren't convicted of clean and unclean. I was amazed. In the area we were in in Alaska at the time it was announced, we don't have to worry about the clean and unclean laws. And people who had not eaten a piece of pork in 30 years were down at McDonald's ordering an Egg McMuffin the next day. Maybe that night, for all I know. That's just the ones I knew about. Now, we proved it or not. We've gone over a lot of things in this little group that were, are truly strange to the ears of most of the church of God today. <clears throat> you believe most of it or you wouldn't be here. If you proved it, how hard would it be for someone to drag you away from it? What if somebody came here on the property and they started talking about this, talking about that, talking about something else? Could they sway you? Could they get you going down another path? Have you proved it in your Bible for yourself so that it is entrenched in your mind and emotions and you have absolute proof from Scripture. We can be swayed so easily by emotion. Through itching ears, good-sounding things. Don't listen to me. Well, listen, but don't believe me. Believe your Bible. Herbert Armstrong told us that I don't know how many times, and we didn't listen to him. We didn't get our Bible out and prove from Genesis to Revelation what the Sabbath was and what it meant and how important it is and how to keep it. We just didn't do it. And tens of thousands just dropped it. Just like that. I knew one guy who had been in the church for at least 30 years. Sermon was given in Anchorage with all the Alaska churches there that says, well, we're going to keep the Sabbath from 6 to 6 now because it makes more sense in this climate up here. The guy sitting directly in front of me, as soon as the sermon was over, got up and said, well, that makes my life easier. All he understood, he was convinced against in an hour. Maybe in the first 10 minutes, for all I know. But certainly at the end of an hour, he was convinced and got up and said so. Do you know what you know and know that you know it? God is going to choose those whom he will work through. and where he will work. I would hope that when we see 
We don't have so much ego and so much vanity and so much self that we won't listen. And we'll say, that's just a man. Ah, just one of our brothers. The Savior himself went back to Nazareth and could do no miracles there. He could not do it. Except healing a few sick folks. A few believed enough of what they had seen and heard that they had enough faith to be healed, some, a little of them, a few of them. But most said, oh, that's Mary's son, that's Joseph's boy. Well, you know, they weren't really married, but you know what I mean. He can't be important. He can't be special. He's a bastard. They didn't understand. They would not understand. No matter where he went and what he did, they would not understand that this kid that grew up in their neighborhood was the Son of God. How strong an example do we need that even the very Son of God could not make the kind of impressions on the people he'd been around that needed to be made. What chance do men have in this day and age, not being the very sons of God, of being heard and what they have to say being respected because it comes out of the Word of God? Now, they are the sons of God, but not like Christ was, just as we are all the sons of God. But if God puts them there, he will inspire them, he will guide them, and he will lead them in truth. And who are we to say, oh, I know him. He was this, he's that. Ninety percent, brethren, will reject the very messenger sent by Almighty God of the entire universe and turn and walk away and go into the tribulation rather than hear and heed and do what the very ones God sends say. That's almost, that's mind-boggling. It's almost behind, beyond comprehension to grasp that God himself would send people to the church, God's own church, to God's own people that he's called out of the works, that do have a great deal of knowledge about God and his word, and yet when you get deeper into the Word of God and say things that they haven't heard before, they will reject it and reject you, even though you have been sent by God himself. What an incredible thing. I hope I'm not one of those. I hope you're not one of those. See why we need to be zealous right now? Not Laodicea, not lackadaisical. We need to search and be sure what God's Word says and be sure we know what we're doing 
because nine out of ten people are going to do the wrong thing. Now, if you take it for granted, what's your chance? One out of ten. No, your chance is zero out of ten if you take it for granted. It's even worse. Now, if you wake up and get into it, then your chances improve to nine or ten out of ten. Because God is looking for those who will diligently search and find and seek and do. So you can go from zero or 10% chance to 90 to 100% chance is where you can go. It's up to you. But know ahead of time, 9 out of 10 are going to go the wrong way. Let's say somebody puts on a feed and they poison 9 out of 10 dishes. What if they're, I don't know, did, did they do that back here at Potluck today? We'd go back there, maybe 9 out of 10 of those dishes has poison in it. And you're going to go through that line and you're going to start picking food out of those dishes. What are your chances? of not corking off with the first bite. Pretty poor. Nine out of ten will choose the wrong way. Choose the wrong dish. <clears throat> what if there's ten people left when they're choosing sides for softball? Ten people left, only one to be chosen. What's your chances? Now, you already know nobody wanted you because you're standing there with the last ten. Now they're going to choose one more and the other nine have to go away. About that time, most of us, at least in our minds, would be putting our mitt in our car and headed home. We'd know. Chances are pretty slim. It's up to us what we do. They could have stayed in Egypt and died. I mean, in Canaan and died. But Jacob had enough sense to tell them, go where the corn and buy it and bring it home. We'd like to eat. Nine, 90% of the church, 9 out of 10, will sit and starve to death spiritually rather than do something about it. Now, is there a lesson here or what? <clears throat> now, he dreamed the dream. His brothers didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. And his dad even questioned it. And now they come and bow down before him with their faces to the earth. Who to thunk it? They still didn't know who he was. Didn't have a clue who he was. But he was the governor of Egypt and he had corn. And when they made that trip, without much provision, without much food, they got there, they bowed down before Joseph. 
And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange to them, spoke roughly to them. And he said to them, Where'd you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And it repeats it. Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. Now, I suspect when God sends some leadership to the church in the end time, they're going to know where the church is. They're going to know where God has called people out. They're going to have some experience with the church. They'll know. And when people come to them, they're going to be able to discern attitude and approach, teachability, open-mindedness, or ego, vanity, and selfishness, and people who are not willing to be taught. They'll be able to discern and perceive attitude. God gives them the plumb line and the rod to decide who stays and who goes. That's scary. You better hope that they have God's mind and attitude and discernment and perception. They didn't know him. And most of the church, see that those that God sends to build the latter temple are going to know and be able to discern and be led by the Spirit of God to see what is true and what is not. But 90% of the church will not know or accept them. So Joseph had spent 17 years with these other boys. He'd gone to Egypt for a few years, changed his attire, his manner of speaking was different, spoke a different language, and his own brothers didn't recognize him. Are we going to recognize our brothers when God sends them? <clears throat> Or will they be strange and foreign to us? Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. He had changed. I'll guarantee you that the leadership God sends to the church at the end time to build the latter temple will have changed. They won't be like they were anymore. They will have learned some things that they did not know in the past, they will not be preaching the same old things over and over, week after week after week, without having moved forward. It won't happen that way. If you see a guy that's preaching the same way he was, was 40 years ago today, he has not grown. He has not moved forward. His understanding has not increased. If you can sit in the services of a part of the church of God and predict everything that's going to be said, something is wrong. If there is not new insight, new understanding, deeper understanding and a far bigger picture than there was before, something is wrong. Now there are a lot out there there's the other side of the coin, who aren't anything like what they were 40 years ago, 
and in fact have an awful lot of stupidity that they've learned. Like the day starts in the morning. Just to name one that comes to mind. One of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. When the Bible itself says, keep the day of atonement from evening to evening. And there are other places that show that. But they've taken a very shallow understanding of certain scriptures and interpreted it wrongly. So there are some out there with some really wild ideas. Yeah, they've changed. They've gone off the deep end. Now here's the problem. Those who truly are following God's way and understand the Bible better have changed. Those who have taken a shallow understanding and gone off after the Jews or somebody else or sacred namers or wherever they go have also changed, but for the worse. Now where does that leave you and me? We had better find out what this book really says. And we had better be close enough to God that we can recognize where he is speaking and recognize where he is not speaking. That is a huge responsibility, brethren. And it could determine whether you go into the lake of fire or whether you become a part of the Bride of Christ. A lot of people are going to lose out on an opportunity at salvation because they did not do their homework and make the wrong choices. There's another wild idea. Yes, we have choices to make. Choose you this day. Life or death, but choose life. Why will you die, O Israel? Going to get critical pretty soon. Do you know and know that you know? All seven churches are going to come to be fed of specifically one and ultimately two. That's scripture. Will you be able to recognize it? And will you have enough study of the Bible to know that what they're speaking is the truth? Or will you just dismiss it? Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. I've seen people whose theological process, if you could call it such a thing, is to look up one or two scriptures and say, well, that settles that for me. They are not willing to take the time and the energy to find out what God really says in all the scriptures, here a little and there a little, that the Bible has about a subject. They know what they want to believe. Therefore, they will find a scripture they like, and they will go with that one and that one only or two or three, but not all fifty, or all hundred, or all a thousand that apply to it. And they get to do what they want to do in their vanity and ego and selfishness, and they could care less what God Almighty really believes about his metrics, because they want to do what they want to do. 
not find out what God really wants to do and humble themselves and fear and tremble before His Word and do what God says. They are playing with death itself if they approach the Word of God in that fashion. That's what all the Protestants do, brethren. The Methodists know about six verses. The Baptists know one. I mean, the, the Catholics know one. Holy Mary, Mother of Jesus. And that's not even a scripture. They don't know. And they have their whole religion based on one or five or ten or fifteen or twenty passages. And that's it. And that's not even much of an exaggeration. Is the church of God going to do that? Now, Joseph had a dream. And his brothers poo-pooed the idea, thought about killing him and almost did, sold him into slavery, and years later, they bowed down before Joseph. And didn't know it. <laughs> didn't even know it. They knew him not. Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. He didn't think about those dreams every day. He, wasn't always, he didn't wake up every morning and say, I must be special. I dreamed a dream that must have come from God. My brothers are going to bow down before me. I imagine he got busy with his education and learning languages and learning the Egyptian ways and uh, so on. He probably rarely, if ever, thought about those dreams. But when his brothers, and he recognized them, bowed down before him, he remembered the dreams, brought it all back to him. He said to them, you are spies to see the weaknesses in the land you are come. I know why you're here. You're spies. They said to him, oh, no, my Lord. My Lord? <laughs> this is Joseph. This is our little brother. No, no, this is my Lord. But to buy food are your servants come. We're all one man's sons, and we are true men. Your servants are no spies. No, we're not spies. And he said to them, no, but to see the weaknesses of the land. You came here to spy us out. You're going to come down here and try to destroy us. They said, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. One's dead. Well, they're trying to convince him some way that they're legitimate. He's not having any part of it. I bet he was having fun. In one way, it was had to be bittersweet. I'm still alive, and you're my brothers, and here you are. Joseph said to them, that is it that I spoke to you, saying you were spies. That's it. That's what I believe. That's the way it's going to be. So all their arguments, he turned down and just kept driving it home. Hereby you shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh. Now that's 
pretty strong swearing. You shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come here. He had Pharaoh's backing, and he could invoke Pharaoh's name and know that it would be done. Unless Pharaoh died, another man came in and became Pharaoh that would kill Joseph or discredit it. So he could use that. He had that much authority. Except your young brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. You've got to prove your story. And, of course, he did it his way. He wanted to see Benjamin. He put them all together in prison three days. And Joseph said to them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. That's kind of the choice God gave us. This do and live. Why will you die? If you be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison, Go you, carry corn for the famine of your houses. He was going to make sure his kinfolk were taken care of, but he wasn't going to let this guy, these guys in on the deal. But bring your youngest brother to me, so shall your words be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. They agreed to that. And they said one to another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, he pleaded, he begged, and we would not listen. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Now they were applying the what goes around comes around principle and saying, we deserve this. Reuben answered them saying, spoke I not to you saying, do not sin against the child and you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. So Reuben got in the I told you so mode and looked down on the others. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them by an interpreter. He didn't speak in their language at all. He planned this ahead when he saw them and recognized them who they were, and thought his plan through, put them in prison three days, and then they were speaking in their tongue, and he understood it perfectly, but he spoke to an an interpreter in the Egyptian language, so they wouldn't know that he knew what they were saying that he was listening. He turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes so going to keep him there. God is aware of the whole church. He's aware of all Israel. But he will work mostly through a few, a remnant, just as he chose Joseph. I have all the brothers here, but I'm going to work through him. That's just all there is to it. You might as well get used to it, because that's the way it's going to be. He turned himself and wept. He was emotionally distraught. He was so relieved to see his brothers alive and know that Benjamin was alive and his dad was alive, and yet he didn't want to reveal himself to them at this point. He knew they had some comeuppance coming and needed to learn a lesson. 
and his dream had come through, so he felt God's backing in what he was doing and realized that God had chosen him to do a job that he had not chosen his brothers to do. And they weren't having any of it. And he wanted to drive this point home hard enough and long enough that when it was revealed, they would understand and grasp it. Had he immediately said, oh, I'm Joseph, they might not have understood. They might not have gotten the point. But this is a pretty prolonged situation that goes through several chapters here, and we don't have time to cover it all. In fact, I think I'll stop right there because I've got another scripture I want to go to with the next verse, and uh, that would take some time. We're getting close to time to stop. So let's stop there at the end of verse 24 where he bound Simeon and was going to send them back to pick it up there.